Hello, and welcome to Baha'i Blogcast with me, your host, Rain Wilson. This is where I interview members of the Baha'i faith and other friends from all over the world about their hearts and minds and souls, their spiritual journeys, what they're interested in, and what makes them tick. Enjoy. Smitty, thanks so much for joining the uh, Baha'i Blogcast. So great to see you today. I'm delighted to be here, uh, and I've been looking forward to this, and particularly after seeing the long line of people you've had with you before. What a stellar list. Well, great. Well, I, I love so much the work that you're doing with the Center for Race Amity, but before we get to that and the documentary work, you're being a professor, etc., let's go back. I want to hear a little bit about you. I want to hear your story and especially uh, how you came to be a Baha'i. Well, you know, interestingly, right, there's this quotation that I will paraphrase. And Baha'u'llah says, so powerful is the word Baha that it has but to fall on the ears of an individual. And that individual will be given the opportunity to investigate his cause. It doesn't say the person will become a Baha'i. And mm-hmm. so I had that bounty actually reign as a small child. I grew up in South Carolina, Greenville, South mm-hmm. Carolina, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and of course, in a very rigidly segregated era. And my family is steeped in the Baptist faith, fundamentalist Baptist, and we're all big churchgoers. My family has a long, long history going back to the emancipation of my great-great-grandfather of having preachers in the family. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, in fact, my great-great-grandfather, great-grandfather built what is one of the oldest still standing Baptist churches in the state of South Carolina, African-American mm-hmm. Christian hope. But anyway, I grew up in Greenville, was at uh, went to Springfield Baptist Church. And every Sunday as a little boy, what a glorious, I can remember being in that church pew, sitting between my grandmother and my mother, like four or five years old, leaning on my grandmother, people sang and rejoiced. And one of the interesting things that happened uh, is that about once a month, either first or third Sunday, I can't remember particularly, but this white lady would come to our church and her name, who I got to know later and got to know her personally and to love her so dearly. But as a small boy, four or five years old, Junie Faley is her name. She would come to our church and in the tradition of the church, the Baptist tradition, she would stand up she would announce herself doing the uh, greeting and recognition of uh, visitors. And she'd stand up once a month. She'd say, my name is Junie Faley, and I'm a member of the Baha'i faith. And we believe in the oneness of mankind. And I came to worship with you this Sunday. And then she'd sit down. Now, she came so regularly rain. <laughs> that my brothers and sisters and I, we used to call it White Lady Sunday. As <laughs> <laughs> kids say, oh, it's White Lady Sunday. And she was a diminutive little, she was like all of 4'10", white hair, big, big bulging blue eyes, mm. and a very high-pitched little voice. And so 
that's when I literally first heard Baha'i as a, mm-hmm. as a small child. And then later, thanks to the power of this dispensation, the spiritual power released by Baha'u'llah, I had the bounty of investigating later as a teenager the Baha'i faith. He came back, circled back to me in high school. And that's a whole interesting and funny story, but I, I don't want to spend too much time on it, but... Well, wait a minute. If there's an interesting and funny story to be had, then we've got we've to dig in. Come on. Oh, you, okay. So, so fast forward, I'm in high school, and I had a tumultuous early teenage years, a very troubled young fellow. <laughs> Okay. Uh, in the sense that basically was a hellraiser and troublemaker kind of guy, and actually spent some time in the reformatory as a result. And it was a rebellion, actually. My, I have a younger brother. This is a sidebar. But my baby brother, for 13 years, I was the baby in my family. Okay. My, my grandmother, my, everybody doted on me. My mother, who was divorced initially when I was like two years old, remarried. And so here I am at 13, and my mother has my younger brother. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. (laughs) And upset my world, man. I went from being the kingpin to, you know, everybody's doting on baby Ricky, you know. So Uh I just went, I went hell to bell. Uh, just doing all kinds of crazy, crazy stuff. But anyway, long story short, uh, I come back to, you know, from reform school after a seven-month stint. And one of my classmates in high school was Ricky Abercrombie. Ricky was also uh, a notorious hell-raising teenager. <laughs> and he uh, lived in another part of town, but we'd see each other at school. He was an athlete. We're on a track team together. Fast Mm. forward, we're in school one day. We're athletes at the school I went to. We all got free lunches if you played a sport. So if it was track season, you get free lunch if you're on the track team. If it was Mm -hmm. basketball season, you get free lunch during the basketball season if you played football, etc. So it was springtime. Rick was on the track team. We're in the cafeteria, teenage boys, we're wolfing down these lunches, and we look over at Rick, and he's not eating lunch. And we say, hey, man, Rick, what's up, man? Why are you not eating that lunch? He says, well, I'm fa- I'm fasting. Mm. And we say, you what? Because where I grew up, you're either AME, African Methodist Episcopal, or... Baptist, principally, that's who you were. There were just a tiny sprinkling of Catholics, but not many. Mm-hmm. But those are the predominant. And neither of those, AME or Baptist, fast. So we're like, you're doing what? Fasting? And this is South Carolina, and this is the late 50s? Yeah. No, this is in the 60s. This is in mm-hmm. 1963, about, Okay. This is the spring of uh, 63. So we says, you're fasting. What, what are you talking about fasting, man? 
He says, well, but we looked at Rick like he had three heads. You, you know, nobody fast where we were in our community. And we had noticed, actually, because Rick had a reputation of being a big party guy and a hellraiser. Yeah. Uh, and Rick had fallen off drinking wine with us and doing all kinds of other things. And so we said, well, what? He says, yeah, he says, well, I'm a Baha'i now. And Baha'u'llah has come. Christ has returned. And his new name is Baha'u'llah. And we says, oh, God, Rick has been drinking too much bootleg, man. <laughs> now, it's it's gone to his brain. I mean, it's he's gone crazy. Mm. And we laughed at him and says, okay, so you say Christ has returned. His name is Boobalooba. And so, <laughs> <laughs> so he became, you know, sort of like the joke. And uh, I said, well, okay, that's good, Rick. How about giving me your lunch? (laughs) (laughs) You got a free lunch out of the deal. That's good, sweetie. So anyway, but that started at that point to uh, set up my own personal uh, opportunity to investigate the Baha'i faith. And at that time, Rick did something that was totally unusual for our community, Mm. uh, the black community. Rick actually went to London to the first International Baha'i Conference as a junior in high school. Wow. And we were we were amazed, you know, because first of all, nobody in our little community ever went. The closest you go is to the next town, uh, yeah. down down to Spartanburg or Clemson. Uh, oh, well, you some people got to go to New York. But certainly not, not not to London, England. And so that was, and he went, he came back and he was talking about, we were curious because we never knew anybody in our circle who had traveled. And he was talking about Baha'is from around the world. And so that's, I mean, this is weird, but okay, he got to go to England, right? Yeah. Uh, as a part of this new religion. Fast forward, Rick was one of the few people, we had three or four teenagers in my class who had their own car. Rick was one of those. But Rick got his car the old-fashioned way. He built it, literally. <laughs> no, no. Rick, Rick Abercrombie is a mechanical genius. I mean, this guy could fix anything. And before he became a Baha'i, uh, some of us would go to the junkyard. He'd tell us what parts he wanted. We'd scale the fence, steal the parts, bring them back. And, <laughs> <laughs> you know, he'd put them together in this in this car. And he literally had the old um, Ford Coupe that had the, the rumble seat in the back, literally. He'd cruise around in this thing. And uh, he was our my way to get to go to parties. So if I want to go to a party, you know, hey, Rick, you're going to Brenda's party. Come by and give me a ride. He'd always give me a ride. So, But eventually, Rick starts saying he kept pressing me and other friends uh, to go to these Baha'i fireside meetings. And 
we say, yeah, 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 we'll go. But then every time he would call and say, hey, Smitty, I'm going to the fireside this Saturday. Uh, I'll come by and pick you up. And I didn't want to go. So I say, oh, Rick, you know, I got to babysit my younger brother, man. Sorry, mm-hmm. I, can't, I can't make it. So then he caught on to that, right? So next time I want to go to, hey, Rick, you going to uh, Brenda's party next week? He said, nah, Smith, I'd love to give you a ride, man. But I got to babysit my younger brother. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, you know, okay. So me and some of the guys, Brenda, actually, and Kirby Wallace and Steve Moore, all of who actually became Baha'is. We all became Baha'is pretty much together. But wow. we, we went, so Rick would pick us up. We'd jump in this old Ford. And first fireside I went to, we're driving along. The last pickup was Kirby Wallace. And we picked Kirby up. And Rick says, well, okay, we're going over to Overbrook. We say, Overbrook? Overbrook is, that's where white people live, man. And so he said, no, it's all right. And so we're driving into this white section of town. Now, this is uh, late 1963, and times are tumultuous uh, Mm. in the South. And I'm riding along, and I say, Rick, you sure you know where you're going? He said, yeah, yeah, it's all right. And I says, man, but we could get shot over here. So we go, we pull into this white neighborhood, and I said, no, man, you need to turn around. I'm not going over here. And so he says, no, we're almost there now. And we pull right up in front of this big house, and uh, we're all in the car, and there were Rick and three others, me, Brenda, Kirby, and Steve. There were four of us, actually. They were all crammed back there in the rumble seat. So this guy comes to the door, and he sticks his head. He says, Rick, is that you? And Rick said, yeah, it's me, Dick. He says, I got some friends. He says, oh, you come on in, come on in. So, like, I'm here I am, frozen. I'm saying, oh, hell, here I am in this white neighborhood. You know, it's like 730 at night. If I stay here in the car, somebody's going to call the cops or worse, come out here and shoot me. So my best bet is to go in the house with everybody else. We go into this house. And it's the first time I've ever been into a white person's house through the front door. And I go in and I'm really nervous as hell. Rain, I'm. You know, like, oh, God, what is going on? And immediately I go into the room, and there's this big living room. And in this living room, there are all these people, about 20 of them, black and white people. Mm. And I'm saying, what is going on? I mean, these. and then I looked around the room, and I saw Mrs. Hurd my grandmother's best friend and quilting buddy. There's Miss Heard <laughs> sitting here in this living room with all these white people and, you know, some other black people. 
Was the little white woman who came in the church, was she there that day or, or not so yes. much? Yes. Yeah, no. And there's Junie Faley. Uh-huh. What I find out is Junie Faley had befriended a number of the black women in our church and had been having them at her home for tea. So they had a friendship going ah. on. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Miss Hurd and none of the other black women, they weren't spreading the word about this because this was taboo, man. And plus, there's this Baha'i stuff, this which is so strange and exotic. You don't want anybody to know that you're going around with any Baha'is. Uh, so, <laughs> so, so, no, so this is what's happening. And, uh, but seeing Mrs. Hurd there was a real point of relief. I said, oh boy, Miss Hurd's here. It must be all right. You know, she's my grandmother, one of my grandmother's closest friends. So there I am with all these Baha'is. And then there's Ricky's father, who Papa Jake, we called him. Charles Abercrombie uh, there, and he's giving this Baha'i talk. And Charles Abercrombie had, at that point, become a real source of serious gossip in the Greenville black community. Okay. Because Charles Abercrombie had been the chief steward at Tabernacle Baptist, which was another church but one of the other large black churches in Greenville. Mm-hmm. And Charles Abercrombie had become a Baha'i because his investigation started because he saw the profound effect that Baha'i had on Ricky's life. And he said... And, and I hate to go down this rabbit hole, but how did, how did 13-year-old or 15-year-old Ricky find out about the Baha'i faith? How did Ricky find out? Our friend Harry Johnson, who is actually, and I haven't seen Harry since I was a kid, Eulalia Bobo, who is a great Baha'i teacher. These are some great names, by the way. Eulalia Bobo, that's fantastic. Well, Eulalia Bobo, though, is an icon in the black Baha'i community. She was one of the greatest, literally, Rain, one of the Mm. greatest Baha'i teachers of all time. I wow. mean, her, no, her travel teaching, and I'm not exaggerating, rivaled Lewis Gregory's in the South. Wow. She constantly, and even in Greenville, they have a little snippet in the Greenville news. Eulalia, sister of Joe Lewis, comes, gives talk on Baha'i, and she'd come to Greenville and give a, a, a Baha'i talk. Eulalia Bobo was an incredible Bible scholar. Mm. Uh, and she got to know people in the black community in Greenville. And one of the people she got to know were the parents of Harry Johnson, who was a friend of ours. And she adopted Harry. But Harry was also a friend of Rick Abercrombie's. All of mm. us, when, though we lived in different parts of town, we basically went to one of three schools and congregated at the uh, high school because there was only one high school in Greenville for mm-hmm. blacks. But anyway, so that's 
one of the the first contacts Rick had with the Baha'i faith. Mm. Uh, mm. I don't know the full story of his investigation. That's all right. Uh, but he, Rick, grew up as I did. Uh, we're all we're Bible Baha'is. In other words, we came into the Baha'i faith literally through Scripture and challenging all of those things. Wow! Uh, yeah. So yeah, <clears throat> and so his father was a preeminent Bible guy. Uh, yeah, and you were talking about the the controversy that uh, his father becoming a member of the Baha'i faith. Yeah, well, the controversy became because Papa Jake actually saw the impact of the Baha'i faith on Rick's personal life. And he said often, he said, when I saw the change in Ricky's life, I could not help but investigate mm, what mm. it causes. And the Abercrombies are a big family. There are eight kids, okay? And Papa Jake said, I want to investigate. So when Eulalia came to town, Papa Jake went over to one of the firesides that the Baha'is held and heard Eulalia speak. Then as he got to know her, he challenged her and said to Eulalia, if you can show me, if you can prove to me in scripture that Baha'u'llah is the return of Christ, I'll become a Baha'i too. Wow. So on one of her visits, they sat down, and this is a fabled story in the Greenville Baha'i community, and those who know the Abercrombies. I mean, it may be embellished a bit now, but the story has it. Eulalia came over. Abercrombie is what we call Rick's mother, Lily Abercrombie. But Abercrombie put on a pot of coffee, and so Papa Jake and Eulalia sat there all night, her and him. And mm. went through the and went through the scriptures, mm. and the next next day, Papa Jake said, "The Lord of the Age has come." Wow! Wow! What did he do? He went to Tabernacle Baptist Church that Sunday, stood up in front of the entire congregation said, brothers and sisters, I have a message. Christ has returned and his new name is Baha'u'llah. The Lord of the age has come. And I want to share it with you because I love you. I also want to share that I have to step down as the chief of uh, the, the board here at Tabernacle because I have to dedicate my life to Baha'u'llah. The, this declaration that he did before the entire congregation went through the gossip vine like wildfire. My mother, my grandmother called my mother Katie, Katie, did you hear about what happened at Charles? 
because my mother and Charles Abercrombie knew each other. They were actually went to high school together. Mm-hmm, so they mm-hmm. knew each other. And the, the Abercrombies, again, were a huge family. I mean, huge. Not just his family, but he had like 10 brothers and sisters. And they all had eight or 10 kids. So anyway, he had uh, eight or 10 uh, brothers and sisters. But anyway, she called my mother and said, Katie, you know what? That Baha'i thing has got Charles Abercrombie. He's become a baha'i <laughs> And so the word was just, it was crazy, man. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was big news. So anyway, so I was, I kept going to these firesides and seeking this literal proof of Baha'u'llah. And patiently, Papa Jake, who was a master Bible man, just patiently walked me through so many things. The literal figurative, you know, statements in the Bible mm-hmm. about the Lord of the age. And one of the amazing things was, and still is, the love for Jesus, the Christ, that Papa Jake shared, in which I have in my heart. To I mean, my love for Jesus, the Christ, is greater than it was even when I Mm. Was just a Christian because I That's really beautiful. come to fully realize, you know, Christ, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. then knowing Baha'u'llah was his return of his spirit. Yeah, and how powerful was it for you to be in these rooms with blacks and whites mixing together at that time in Jim Crow South, and how dangerous was it for the Baha'is to gather that way? Uh, well, it was very dangerous, but they were so bold, Rain, that people were just totally startled by the brazenness of the Baha'is to live their teaching that I don't know what they thought, but I think they thought, well, these people must be crazy. We don't know what they will do if they're willing to step out and do this. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. A a powerful example is one, uh, the Benson family, who were Baha'is, in whose house I went to my first fireside. Mm -hmm. Uh, They were a couple from Michigan. He was an attorney. She was an MD, professionals. Dick came to Greenville. This guy, white man, goes and rents an office in the black professional building. People hmm. say, who, who the hell is, is this guy crazy? Or maybe he's a, a black guy who's been passing as white, and now he wants hmm. to come home. I mean, <laughs> people to... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then, and so then, but everybody knew Dick was white. Then he hired a black secretary, which was like, It was just, this stuff was unheard of. And a a, a famous, a funny story quickly is he enjoyed both being professional, doctor and lawyer. She's at Greenville General Hospital. The Greenville Professional Association had a drive to have new members. And they were part of the Greenville Professional Association. And they encouraged everybody 
you know, well, bring new members. And so, because Dick was in the black professional building, he knew Bill Gibson. Well, who was Bill Gibson? Bill Gibson, who would later, not too much later, become the national chairman of the board of directors of the NAACP. Mm. So, so mm. Dick, so here's Doc Gibson, who's a dentist, and Dick befriends him, becomes his friend. So Dick and Joy take Bill Gibson to the White Professional Association's meeting as a new member. They were, you know, they were recruiting new members. Well, yeah. not only did they not let Doc Gibson in, they kicked the Bensons out. Yeah. Wow. Wow. <laughs> but but it stopped at that because. But the Baha'is were putting the their money where their mouth was in terms of. Uh, they were living it. They were living. They were living it. it. They were living it, man. But you were saying that it was it could be dangerous sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it could be dangerous because of reactionary folk. Much later on, we had uh, whites who fast forward in a Baha'i youth project in Greenville who were harassing the integrated Baha'i group mm-hmm. of students, service students who were mm-hmm. there, among them Richard Thomas, Bojack Mangrum, Patsy Sims, Jim Sims, Carl Borden. Uh, but uh, we were constantly, they came there to tutor kids who were integrating the public schools in the fall of 64 because of desegregation. Mm-hmm. And so we all were, and it was at the Baptist church that I had belonged to. And so my, incidentally, you asked, well, how did I decide to become a Baha'i? One, I saw these people uh, doing these very bold actions. And I saw these black people and white people in a harmony, basic harmony, though they disagreed around issues like any group of people do. I remember Richard Thomas and Doug Rue used to fight like cats and dogs, you know, philosophical fights and arguments about a whole range of stuff. Mm -hmm. But they had this brotherhood and friendship that, you know, was a solid, was rooted in being Baha'is and so forth. But I remember I was so impressed by this. And at this time, I'm investigating Baha'u'llah. And, I, and I'm and i impressed with their living this life. And I asked him, my minister, I said, Reverend, Reverend Corbett, what? tell me about these, about the Baha'i faith. What do you know about Baha'is? He said, well, you know, the Baha'is are good people, uh, but you have to watch them. And so that gave me the signal that something wasn't right about these people, Mm. uh, which made me continue to resist and go make them or disprove this claim that they had about Baha'u'llah. But this affected so many of us young black kids. In my class, in my high school class, six of us became Baha'is together, same time. Uh, Wow. We were impressed with, one, with Papa Jake, two, with this action of this faith 
and this was at the heart of the civil rights movement, remember? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And one of the favorite things, you know, I have sheep that are not of this fold, which is scripture, you know, how be it when the day of the one fold and the one shepherd shall come, and I will gather them all unto my as my own. So, man, you know, it's just the oneness of mankind, the unit that Baha'u'llah pronounced, announced, mm. all of it just came together. So we were oblivious uh, in a lot of ways to some of the dangers that we lived around, uh, that hovered around us, because we were so full of joy, Rain, honestly, at having these new relationships, these new friendships. Mm. That we just weren't afraid. We didn't. We didn't even think about it. I mean, mm. once the car, the car broke down, coming back from Piedmont, South Carolina, at one of our friends' homes, who had become a Baha'i with us, and we were an integrated group. And then all these real rednecks start to gather around because we had a flat tire, and we we're trying to fix it. They start pulling up in pickup trucks, and. Uh, People in the crowd, it was really a crowd gathering. And we said, oh, man, we, we need, we got to be ready to do some battle here. And God sent this guy comes along, white guy, and he sees it, looks at the situation, sees this crowd. And he says, what are y'all doing here? What's going on here? Like, well, we because there's niggas and white people out here. What they, what they doing here? And so the guy says, and he was a redneck too, uh, by look and tone. But he said, "Now wait a minute here, wait a minute. I'm a minister. I'm a I'm a man of God, and you can't do things to these people. You got y'all best be on your way." Now I'm telling you, I'm a man of God. I'm minister. I'm Reverend so and so and so, and y'all just need to leave these people alone now. Wow! Let it, wow! And, and uh, Christ sent someone along. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly, man. So basically, those are my early experiences of becoming a Baha'i. And I think the theme that, as I say, touched me and so many of my black friends, which was in my community, was Baha'u'llah's message that one fold, one shepherd, there's a place at the table for everyone. And there's especially a place for us at this table. And we're welcome to this feast. And so that got my attention and I decided, hey, this is salvation to my soul and what I'm, you know, gonna try and pursue. And as we all say as Baha'is, we only, I recognize the direction in which I should be going. I haven't arrived anywhere, <laughs> but, but, but I'm working on, on staying in that direction. You are able to set your sail. Now, so this is the kind of the precursor to the work that was done in the, in the late 60s and early 70s in South Carolina. So were you able to see the, the flourishing of the, of the Baha'i community there in South Carolina kind of taking off after this point? Well, yeah, it was a few years later that, you know, the mass teaching movement started in South Carolina. And meanwhile, I went to school, dropped out of school to go into the civil rights movement as an organizer, lost my student deferment, 
got drafted, was sent to Vietnam, and being a Baha'i, which was a momentary wrestle with the whole notion of whether or not I should skip out on this unjust war Mm -hmm. or obey the Baha'i teachings, which is we have to be obedient to the laws of the land. And in our instance, in America, we could serve as non-combatants, as conscientious objectors. So I went into the Army as a conscientious objector Mm -hmm. uh, and was trained in the medical corps and became a medic, served in, I was a platoon medic in the 1st Infantry Division in in Vietnam uh, from 1966 to 1968. Wow. Uh, And uh, when I came back from Vietnam, went to UMass, well, I went back to Greenville and got involved again in civil rights activities and again a test and challenge to faith, trying to balance the just the injustices being heaped upon black with the fact that uh, I wanted to do something and how to do that thing. And this is, I imagine, a big test that uh, contemporary people are facing, which is how to balance social activism and fighting uh, injustice, especially racial injustice, while avoiding conflict and contention and obeying the law of the land and uh, seeking to have that greater vision of Baha'u'llah's kind of spirit, universal spiritual healing. So you were having those same tests in 1968 that uh, so many people are having today. Huge challenge. Uh, One of my close friends who's dead now, Steve Moore, who was a Baha'i, and actually his son was in L.A. He was a a reporter for the L.A. Times. Joshua. Was it Joshua? That was his oldest. Solomon? Solomon. Solomon Moore. Yeah. Solomon Moore. I knew him back in the day, sure. Okay. Solomon's dad and I were high school. He was one of my best friends in high school. Steve huh. Moore. Steve Moore, uh, Ricky Abercrombie. We were all, you know. Yeah, this gang. The whole You got your whole Baha'i posse from uh, 1963 in Greenville. Yeah. yeah. And in fact, we were coming from Steve's house when the car broke down and that incident. I just... Oh, okay. It all comes together. All right. So anyway, but we're in this challenge. Steve was at uh, Orangeburg uh, during the Orangeburg Massacre. Uh, This was before Kent State, when they shot down the black kids at South Carolina State, Mm. uh, Mm -hmm. you know, college, it's university now. Well, Steve was literally one of the students there, narrowly almost got killed. And that's a whole nother story. But that fueled, I had just come back from Vietnam. I was at at Fort Sill, Oklahoma. I get a call in the middle of the night. A night sergeant comes, gets me out of the barrack. You've got an emergency call. Is Steve Moore on the line? Smitty, they're killing us down here. They're going to kill us all. I got to get out of here. I got to get out of town. I don't have any money. I got to get a bus out of here. Next morning, I wired him money, you know, through Western Union so he could jump a bus from Orangeburg, South Carolina to Detroit. He was a part, Steve worked with Cleveland Sellers, who's a gigantic civil rights figure in South Carolina. Mm. In fact, Mm. his son, Cleveland's son, Omari Sellers, is a guy you see on 
CNN all the time as a commentator now. But that's yeah. Cleve Sella's son. But literally people knew Steve's fellow students were killed at that at that, yeah. that massacre at Orangeburg. So anyway, so yeah, and, and a lot of people don't know about this. Just just a little backstory. The Orangeburg massacre at South Carolina State University. Was that a historic uh, black college? Yes, yes, it was. Yeah. yeah, so 200 unarmed black student protesters protesting the war. People, uh, They opened fire on them. Three people were shot and killed. 28 people were wounded. Um, as you were talking, I pulled it up. But uh, I had read about this, and this is a precursor to Kent State and so many other terrible massacres, but uh, just a brutal, horrific bloodbath. The challenge in that era was trying to find that fine line. And there was so much tension and so much frustration and anger. I mean, I had to resolve. I'm just back from Vietnam. I've seen gazillion, well, not gazillion, but dozens of people die for nothing, basically. And a lot of black kids die. Uh, And... Here I am back home, and they're killing black kids on college campuses. Wow. Uh, what do I do? How do I engage in this struggle? And the way that I chose, because, I mean, it was really a choice. It was tempting. Uh, hey, man, you know, take up arms. Take up arms. Mm. Uh, I was a conscientious objector in Vietnam, but... At the same time, I was saying, I truly do know who the enemy is here. Because <laughs> mm-hmm, they're, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. they're killing my brothers and sisters. I see them. But I decided that the route to make way of this nonsense is to become engaged in education. That this mm-hmm. would be the way that I could impact the black community that I could counter uh, all the horrific things that were happening if I could contribute to shaping minds and hearts. So that helped me avoid a direct engagement in violent things. Uh, Yeah. But I still was on the periphery of serious self-defense and uh, had to later tell you other stories about Mm. The National Assembly actually corralling a group of us, including Steve and Bob Henderson, a whole bunch. They were, I didn't I just I didn't know Bob then, but he was corralled in with the group of us that the National Spiritual Assembly, Richard Thomas was one of them, Bo Jack Mangum, who were, we were on the very edge uh, of high law. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Pushing the envelope. (laughs) I mean, our big issue was we had weapons in the Black Awareness Coordinating Committee office, though we weren't aggressive with them, but we said, hey, and we were all young guys. Uh, We'd all read the Dawnbreakers, and so we were using the guise of Fort Tarbarzi. (laughs) 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 And say, hey, you know, the Bob, <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, you you, you get right. excited and you you do your interpretations, and the local assembly was saying, "No, that's not the way." Uh, yeah. And yep. so anyway, but we escaped that by actually a loving National Spiritual Assembly, mm. uh, who called, rounded up 
I mean, a whole bunch of us, mm-hmm. Gwen Claiborne, uh, oh my God, and mm-hmm. brought us to the National Center in Wilmette for a weekend to talk to us. And Glenford Mitchell was in. He was a young guy then. He's older than I am, but he was there with others to talk about the way uh, as Baha'is that we could resolve issues of injustice without resorting to violence. It truly was a loving, love. you talk about a shepherd. Uh, they shepherded, there were about 16 of us who had been giving headaches to various Baha'i assemblies across the country <laughs> because we were on the very fringe of right. uh, doing something crazy. Wow. You know, so... Um, I don't know much about your sporting life, but I do know that you were cited in a Sports Illustrated uh, November 2005 cover story as one of the men who changed the face of college football. What is real quick? What what was that story, and how is that related to? Uh, well, just you know, so I, I became a behind high school. I was my wife bought me a T-shirt that says "Ex Jock." The older I get, the better I was. So <laughs> I'll tell you the better I was story. But actually, I was a I was a very good high school athlete, sprint champion in South Carolina, and a good football player, a really good football player, and was recruited as one of the first uh, the three blacks who integrated Division One football in the old Confederate South. Three mm-hmm. of us went to Wake Forest College University mm-hmm. now uh, in 1964. Uh, mm. And we integrated uh, Division One football in the old Confederate South. It was a tumultuous time. We were not warmly greeted there. No. Though a- acts of amity actually were the cause of our being there. The coach at that time, Coach Bill Tate, who was at Illinois, had only accepted the job at Wake Forest with the promise from the athletic director that he could recruit black players. The reason he made that conditional on his going to Wake Forest as the head coach was that his roommate in Illinois, where he played and was an All-American, his roommate was the fantastic Bobby Mitchell, who was you know, legendary in the NFL, uh, only second to Jim Brown. Bobby Mitchell played for the Washington Redskins, but he was roommates with Bill Tate at Illinois, and they were best friends. Mm. And Bill Tate said, there's no way in hell I can take a coaching job and not recruit guys like Bobby. I mean, that ain't happening. I ain't doing it. So, Mm -hmm. So because of that close friendship he had with Bobby Mitchell, he insisted on that when he went to Wake Forest. Wake Forest quickly surveyed the land, and Bob Grant, Butch Henry, and myself were the top prospects, black kids uh, in the South at that time as Mm. football players. And so they recruited us, and that's how I went to Wake Forest, uh, Wake Forest College. Well, Uh, there's a natural transition there. You're talking about these acts of race amity that helped make that happen. So I want to fast forward to 2010 and the Center for Race Amity. And 
the work for which you're best known. I'm sorry to be skipping over you getting a PhD in education and incredible work that you've done throughout your life, but skipping ahead to this Center for Race Amity, what, what was the inspiration behind that? Wasn't it essentially spoken of by Abdu'l-Bahá? Yeah, yeah, it was. Abdu'l-Bahá introduced uh, really the power and the concept uh, and the moral strength and value of amity uh, in directing or asking, uh, as he would in his spiritual guidance, uh, Agnes Parson, uh, a white woman from Washington, D.C., to organize a convention to bring people together in amity after the horrific things that happened in America in the Red Summer in 1919, where blacks were slaughtered across this country uh, right at the ending of World War One. There was great stress in America. Agnes went to the Holy Land to visit Abdu'l-Bahá, and he suggested to uh, Agnes that she want to create a convention, an opportunity to bring the races together in friendship, in amity. That gave the footwork for this whole concept. Uh, just a quick analysis. The abbreviated position of amity is this. In the sphere of human relationships, the most powerful relationship is family. The second most important relationship are friends. And sometimes actually friendship uh, supersedes family relationships. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the, to the extent that we can create genuine friendships among people is to the extent that we create relationships that are indissoluble and eternal. So Abdu'l-Bahá suggested that a convention of amity to focus on people creating relationships be held, and which is what Agnes Parsons and her true to the Baha'i MO black friends put together. Mm -hmm. uh, she and Coralie Cook, uh, Elaine Locke, uh, Louis Gregory, uh, Cabal to do this thing in segregated DC. Fast forward, my being aware of that history, and when I founded the National Center, well, that cued me that uh, the work that I was doing uh, in dialogues as a part of the National Spiritual Assembly of Baha'is had a race unity committee. Uh, and one of the things we did was during the era, particularly in the Clinton administration early years, uh, when he had the national dialogues on race, the committee, we spearheaded having neighborhood dialogues on race. Mm. In fact, we still use the materials uh, aimed at bringing people together in neighborhoods, which is different than the town hall meetings, which goes to basically like-minded people. Only people come out to those meetings or people who are sort of predisposed to the idea of race unity. But actually having dialogues immediately in your neighborhood, not mm. across town, but we're mm. talking about the people next door. That was a prescription for this movement, 
neighborhood dialogues on race, which I cheered the group to do that. Uh, some of my brothers and sisters who are now in the next world, uh, Nat Rudstein and others were on the committee. We put these things together uh, mm -hmm. and started this neighborhood dialogue on race. And the idea was to build race amity, cross-racial friendships and so mm -hmm. forth. Mm -hmm. So we see, uh, I see the power of amity as a lasting uh, solution, but also a requisite for really allowing people to talk about and discuss race. Race is very, very personal, very mm. personal. And most people on a superficial or initial level is going to lie about it. They're not going to tell you the truth. I'm not going yeah. to tell you what I'm really thinking. Yeah. You know? But if I establish a relationship with you, Rain, as a part of having that relationship and building trust, I will start to tell you what I really feel. Mm. Mm. And because you have a relationship with me, you won't be offended by some of the stupid stuff I might say mm -hmm. or vice mm -hmm. versa because I have a relationship. Well, this brother has a good heart, so I know it's not with any ill intent, uh, and so I can stomach it. But right now, most dialogue is, I don't know you, but I'm going to talk about the most sensitive thing in your life, and let's just lay it out there on the table. Uh, mm, man. Mm. And there's only so much either way that I'm going to take you mm -hmm, know, mm -hmm. in that dialogue. So our approach in the work in the Center for Race Amity is to engage people in a relationship so that they can have a meaningful, in-depth mm -hmm. discussion uh, around issues of race yeah. uh, that don't start and end in words, but that lead to long-term action uh, and powerful, lasting, loving friendships. Uh, and so we know that power, and that's the work we've done with the films, that at the center of all lasting progress in America, I'm talking about things that count, that are registered as things that have change people's lives and afforded access and equity and social justice. At their core, you find close, loving, cross-racial, cross-cultural friendships. You have amity. You have, and there's a power, there's an exponential moral power in amity. Never takes a large number of people. I mean, if you look at the civil rights movement, a minuscule percentage of Americans were involved in the civil rights movement. Of course, wow. now yeah. everybody and his mother was in Selma, you know. <laughs> it's kind of like Woodstock. Anyone who was alive in the hippie days was at Woodstock. But it's, yeah. But, 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 you know, the joke that if everybody was in Selma, who said they were there, the bridge would have collapsed. You know? <laughs> so, but that whole uh, movement, there was just a minuscule percentage of Americans who were actually in it, but the moral power. And Dr. King, you know, articulated it so beautifully about the arc of the moral universe bending to justice. Mm. There's an exponential power, truly, 
that's unleashed. So spiritual moral power in these in the binding of hearts uh, and in the Baha'i writings, uh, uh, it's clearly articulated. So powerful is the light of unity that it can illuminate the whole earth. Mm. So there is an inherent suasion in these acts. And so that's how it was so little, so few get so much done. You know, there mm-hmm. were very, very few people in any of these movements. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. they, so we've invested, we're not stupid. You know, we, we look up, we say, oh, so that's what a power is, right? Well, why am I going to go out here wasting my time spending it on some other notions and ideas when I know the net results of this particular uh, association and friendship is what really moves the needle. So mm-hmm. I can do two things. I can invest in that, but at the same time, uh, I can serve as a support and solace, or as I said recently in, in our newsletter, the National Center, we position ourselves as the water boy to the activist movement. We bring sustenance. We bring refreshing spiritual, moral uh, upliftment. Upliftment, because mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. the battle is heated, and you need people need a break, man. They need caring. Their souls need caring. They get tired. They get weary. So that's a that's a part of our role, and of course we engage in service as well, uh, in service projects directly to humanity. We uh, have our programs that also are direct programs and things that we do uh, to engage Mm. in advancing access and equity. Education, and we use media a great deal to do that. Uh, We try to reach out to, we use, we reach out to young people a great deal. We try and bridge people across the divide through uh, various uh, projects. So my question is, an organization such as yours might be open to criticism, and I imagine it's been criticized in the past by people saying, wait a minute, we need justice. We need laws changed. We need police forces changed. We need, uh, we need economics redistributed. We don't need people having picnics and sharing stories and, and fostering amity. Is your organization sometimes seen as kind of like milk toasty and and old fashioned and not cutting edge? And if so, how do you how do you answer those charges? Well, um, two things. One, if we are doing what we hope to do, we're actually bringing people from different spaces into the same space, uh, which is not milk toast. I mean, if the problem is division racially then the solution is to bridge this division and bring mm. people together. So there's nothing milk toast. It would be no different than saying, uh, mm, uh, because there are white people working in the Black Lives Matter movement and bridging together with black folk to move that. There's nothing milk toast about that. 
they have a relationship that's moving toward change. The same with if a community is celebrating and reaching out in a race amity day activity, or if they're engaging by using our uh, board game, breaking it down toward e pluribusunum, which actually brings people together uh, to delve deep into the issues that divide us. There's nothing milk toast about that. The idea that you can get people from different persuasions to even come uh, consider the same table without a disintegration and a disunity amongst them is, is, is not milk toast. I think people who, and I understand people are impatient and can be impatient, but the prescription and the observation is that you know, it's a long and thorny road and that there are things that everybody must do to help pave that road in a, in a way that allows everybody to travel down that road. Mm. So it's not people sitting around. Brace Amity is not Kumbaya. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and, and if you observe again, the powerful relationships that make change. And one of them, example A, is the founding of America mm-hmm. uh, and the relationship of Charles Thompson and T.D. Eskin, chief of the Delaware Nation. And Okay, I don't know this story. So what's the, what is this story? Well, essentially, Charles Thompson was the first, was the secretary of the Continental Congress. A okay. terribly in a positive way, moral person mm-hmm. to the extent that in his era, literally people as today, people will say, I swear with my hand on a stack of Bibles. Mm-hmm. If they want to make a statement of veracity of truth in his era, people, a common saying was this is though Charles Thompson's hand is on it. When they wanted to make a statement of mm. the truth of a matter. This yeah. is though Charles Thompson's. And so he had, he was known as a moral guy. He was known because essentially he got his reputation for honesty. He came as an immigrant and he dropped a dime on the British agents in Pennsylvania, specifically, who were cheating native peoples out of their land. Uh, mm. and falsifying documents, getting them drunk and having them put an S on it, an X on a paper. And he examined, he was hired by the government and by the king to, you know, investigate what was happening. And he basically told the truth, said, you know, this is what's happening, governor. This is what's happening, King uh, George. This is, these people... This is all untrue. These people are lying. Mm. One of the one of the native people who heard of it was Tidiaskin, who was chief of the Delaware tribe. And at that time, this was during the French and Indian Wars, before the formation of America. And France and Britain were duking it out on who's going to control and own this new land. Mm-hmm. And at the first battle, the first big battle, the French 
because they had recruited native tribes as allies. They decimated the British at Duquesne. I mean, and they said, we're off. We're going we're gonna to own this place. When T.D. Askin found out about Thompson making these statements, he said, oh, I will not engage in any treaty discussions unless this guy Charles Thompson is there to document it. Ah. And he, he and Charles became close friends. He adopted Charles Thompson into the Delaware Nation. Wow. So when it came time for the big wars after Duquesne, the, the big wars in the French and Indian War, the French came and said, okay, Iroquois, Delaware Nation, we want you all to side with us against the British because the French didn't have the numbers. The Brits had the numbers, but by getting the native people, tribes, they had equal numbers or greater. T.D. Uskin said, well, mm, Charles Thompson's my friend. I'm going to sit this out. Mm. Well, all the other native nations said, yeah, you know what? We're sitting it out too. We ain't got no dog in this fight. Mm. And so basically the British beat the French, okay, and mm -hmm. put America on its path to becoming America. Had that not happened easily, had that friendship not existed, mm. we'd be you and I'd be speaking French right now. Mm -hmm. I mean, literally, that's truly an example of the power of cross-racial, cross-cultural friendship. Mm. And I can tell you a gazillion of other impactful relationship-based stories, mm. not pie in the sky, not kumbaya, but where people across black, I mean, the, the right there where you are. I mean, the friendship of Dolores Huerta and uh, Fred Harris Sr. and Cesar Chavez, had that friendship not existed, the whole success of the United Farm Workers just would not have happened, mm. period. Mm. Mm. And and that's not because Smitty's saying it. It's because Dolores Huerta says, because of my French, she calls Fred Ross Sr., who was she and Caesar's closest friend, the godfather of the Chicano movement. Wow. He's a white man. Yeah. And she yeah. says it because of their loving, hello, there's that word, their loving, deep friendship. Mm. And that's what's got to be imbued. Don't mistake loving with kumbaya. Mm. And that's what people do. And people swear they quote my dear, the dear Martin Luther King every day, every hour. And nobody wants to talk about what Martin Luther King said about loving each other. Yeah. yeah. I mean, nobody, you can't escape it. You can't mm. escape it. Uh, and so that's the piece that's missing. And that's what Amity brings to the table. Love, a loving relationship, which endures. It's not on political whim or scholarly analysis. 
you know, all your talk of love reminded me of the most recent letter from the Universal House of Justice uh, addressing racism in the United States. This is the July 22nd letter. And for those who haven't read it or studied it, it is absolutely extraordinary. But a couple paragraphs in, the Universal House of Justice says, ultimately the power to transform the world is affected by love love originating from the relationship with the divine, love ablaze among members of a community, love extended without restriction to every human being. This divine love ignited by the word of God is disseminated by enkindled souls through intimate conversations, which you were talking about earlier, that create new susceptibilities in human hearts, open mind to moral persuasion and loosen the hold of biased norms and social systems, uh, et cetera, et cetera. It goes on, on. You are channels for this divine love. Let it flow through you to all who cross your path. Infuse it into every neighborhood and social space in which you move to build capacity. There can be no rest until the destined outcome is achieved. That's what I meant to have said, right? <laughs> That's it. I mean, that's right on. And and people who want to take the shortcut uh, because it's hard work to build loving relationships. Yeah. You have to bring yourself to task. Yeah. Uh, to deal with the approach to justice by other means uh, is really to concentrate primarily outwardly and not inwardly. Uh, and we have to do both. Uh, yeah. And that's what yeah. love prompts us to do. So real quick, we have to wind up here pretty quick. I want you to tell me about this documentary that you made under the auspices of the Center for Race Amity, An American Story, Race Amity, and, and the Other Tradition. Can you give us a, a little uh, tidbit about that? Essentially, the film... The film and our work, and our work follows the premise, the thesis of the other tradition. And simply put, in our society, in our history, in our national sociology, we are all familiar with the tradition of racism going back to day one, 1619, when slaves arrived on these shores. And the ugly, ugly face and the brutality of the racist tradition in America. Mm -hmm. At the same time, that racist tradition has existed and grown and mutated into various ugly and more ugly forms. There's always been a moral counterweight, a moral pushback to racism always been present in our society though in small groups of people banding together in loving friendship sometimes two sometimes ten sometimes a thousand but banding mm. together to push back and serve as a moral counterweight to racism and using the exponential power, the exponential power of change inherent in amity. Mm. So really what you're saying is that 
again, going back to it's not just kumbaya to talk about amity. That amity can be a spark, a catalyst for enormous social change. So it is, it is a specific and vital tool, not just kind of a good, warm feeling in the heart. Exactly. Absolutely. That's a great, that's a great summary. That is a great summary, Rain. That's exactly what amity is. Uh, and so there is, we say there's the racist tradition, and then there is the other tradition. Uh, and so in our society, we're totally ignorant, for the most part, of this other tradition. We don't know about the better in us and the mm. people who have exemplified that in mm. the fiercest of times. I mean, you know, of course, the cruelty of George Floyd, I mean, and Brianna, all of these things that are happening, just these ugly, ugly things. People say, this just, you know, how could this, well, things ever, I can't imagine having lived back in a time and a day and seeing someone coated with boiling tar because they were black. Mm. The mm. brutality of that. What would my mind imagine about mm. the escape and any progress to those bedeviled human beings who would do that to another human being. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, we have moved and we will move. Yeah. This is only a moment in time and the power and the morality will prevail. The other tradition will prevail. So what you're saying and your organization is saying in your award-winning documentary, this American story about race amity, is that it is crucial to educate ourselves about a history of systemic racism in the United States and the injustice around it, especially for white people. But it is also important to educate ourselves about this other history, this other tradition of race amity and friendship. Educating ourselves on this can help move us forward as well, that both of these things go hand in hand. They absolutely, they absolutely go hand in hand and cannot progress one without the other, really. Mm -hmm. uh, race amity and creating that relationship, of course, will make you, if you aren't predisposed, uh -huh. to understand the other side uh, of things. The other side would not necessarily lead you to amity uh, mm. because I've seen so many well-intentioned people come together and then when it gets into the counterpoint, the blame, grievance, rejection cycle, I call it, things can break down and freeze and not really go forward. Mm. It's getting beyond that and creating the basis that, hey, man, you know, you are my brother, and I accept you as that. And so that means I have to accept you as you are and work with you to change. Yeah. And vice, and vice versa. Mm. And vice versa. Mm. Mm. Uh, and we have to allow that. Uh, we have to allow that. Otherwise, it won't change. Yeah. 
it just won't change. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I'll tell one little story as I close, and, and I'm going to, you know, people, I won't care what people think. But when I was a Baha'i youth, this is one of the most powerful moments in my life about the power of Baha'u'llah. I would go down to Frogmore, which is St. Helena's Island. It's, it's formerly St. Helena's Island, but all the locals, we call it Frogmore. Mm -hmm. They had a Baha'i at this Penn Center uh, on Frogmore, uh, where it was one of the few places in the state where blacks and whites could come together at the, the Penn Center, which is a Quaker-based center. Uh, long story short, down there at a winter school, on my freshman year in college, Christmas break, we're sitting around the fire singing Kumbaya. <laughs> 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 and uh, there was this Baha'i there. I'll just call him Jim. He was the poster child for the redneck southern Ball head cop. Okay. Mm -hmm. With all its burly features. Mm. And we're sitting there around this campfire. People are singing. And he was a cop. And this guy turns to me. And he says, you know. And we didn't really know each other. I mean, because we were just there. We just got there for a day or so. And it was like a three-day weekend. And he says, you know, he said, that was a time that I would love to get my hands on a black boy like you and beat the shit out of him. Mm. Mm. He says, but because of Baha'u'llah, I know you're my brother. And it's because of Baha'u'llah. And that's all I can tell you. I can't tell you no more. Mm -hmm. Man, Rain, it was profound in my heart. Yeah. It was prof profound in my heart. And so I know, and he wasn't just saying it. I mean, you... As a white man, we want to meet this dude on the road. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know what I'm saying? As a, yeah, yeah. As a, as a cop. I mean, um, yeah. but his heart. A transformation. I've been to a transformation. Mm. And so. Beautiful. I say we all have to know at the end of the day mm -hmm. that salvation mm -hmm. is within each of us. Mm-hmm. And that we just can't automatically write people off. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's a beautiful yeah. story. William Smitty Smith, uh, what an honor to hear your story and to hear your perspective. Congratulations on all the amazing work that you've done. Um, but wait, Center. but wait, there's more, there's more. No, I'm just <laughs> <laughs> Well, we could go on for another hour and a half, but maybe we need a part two to this. And, and by the way, you absolutely need to write a book about your early years. I want to... I have a memoir. As soon as I get 
the National Race Amity Institute in Atlanta, which we're building and opening. And I'll tell you more about that offline at some yeah. point. Oh, it's fantastic. I mean, it's right diagonal from the Martin Luther King Center in Atlanta. And we've Wonderful. been gifted this space uh, to create a National Race Amity Institute there to carry out these ideas and so forth. But uh, we'll talk about that another time. So That's fantastic. And people can find out more about uh, Center for Race Amity. Raceamity.org. That's great. That's great. We'll put the link below here on the podcast. And uh, such an honor and a pleasure, Smitty, as always. Thank you so much for having us. And actually, I'll see you for a short time at the National Race Amity Conference in November. That's right. I'll be there. All right. (laughs) However I can help. You know I'm there for you. I know. Okay. Much love, brother. Thank you so much. Love you, Love you, too. Okay. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Baha'i Blogcast. Hope you enjoyed the episode and the conversation. Check out more fun Baha'i stuff on Baha'iblog.net. Thank you so much, and good night.